0: Okay, turn to Romans 16, Romans 16, our message today is called Benediction, and I'm going to read that passage and then we will pray. you can follow along. Romans 16 verse 1, these are the words of God. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca, or Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stacus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphania and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers. To watch out for those who cause divisions divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sos- um, Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus, greet you. Our Father and God, we have come now to your word and uh, asking that your spirit would illuminate our minds and convict our hearts. Help us to hear what you have to say, and may we take seriously the wonders of your gospel message. In Christ's name I pray, amen. amen. So today is our 31st message and final week of our study of the Letter of Romans, and uh, it's sort of like a sigh of relief for me whenever we finish a book, because um, it's, it's, a, it's a labor of love. And the first sermon, I actually had to go back and check because I couldn't remember, but the first one was July 5th, 2020. So, 30, 31 weeks, uh, we you know took a break for the Foundation series, and so it's kind of neat to look back and think, oh, wow, how about that? Um, so, I, I yeah, I had to go back and check, so it was July 5th, which is interesting. But at any rate, uh, as we're wrapping up our study here in Chapter 16, um, it's basically a... a <laughs> It's a rather different taste than what we've seen before. A lot of names, you know, it's a, it's a different feel. Hmm. Remember that Romans very much overall is a very large, a very dense letter with a lot of theological teaching, a lot of doctrinal concerns. Paul has talked about the doctrine of sin in chapter 1 and into chapter 2. He's talked about the doctrine of substitutionary atonement and the centrality of the resurrection of Christ for the Christian gospel. He has dealt with the relationship of Jews and Gentiles in the church and some of the complexities that go along with with that sort of thing uh, and how they are essentially connected together in the covenant of grace. He's focused on how Christ has brought all of Israelite history to its climax in the person and work of Jesus, the Son of God. So he's covered a lot of various things. And he has shown us how grace and law work together to provide covenant life for the church. Um, Grace and law work together to provide um, covenant life for the church. And after sorting out community relations, remember he's urging us to renew our minds, to be living sacrifices, and then he sort of talks about how to function as the people of God. Paul then closes out his letter in chapter 16 here. He says hello to 29 people and 27, 27 of them by name which is interesting. One-third of them are women. After his greetings and salutations, we have a, a, a benediction at the end, which bookends and recaps the entire letter, which is where we'll spend most of our time. So I just kind of want to run through this rather quickly and pull out some application points as we, as we see Paul finish out his grand letter to the Christians at Rome. Uh, keep in mind, historically, Augustine, uh, became a Christian through reading Romans. Uh, Romans has been really uh, um, central to even the Reformation uh, with John Calvin, Martin Luther himself. Uh, Luther was really uh, enamored by Galatians as well, but you know a lot of the same content is covered. So Romans is a very, very important book. It's a, it's, there's a reason why you have the Romans road and uh, pithy verses like Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And you have all these wonderful nuggets and so, I, you know, take a deep breath and appreciate Romans, uh, because it's, it's a really important book. Not that there are non-important books, but it has a special, a special place. All right, so look at your Bible. We're going to walk through this. Paul begins in verse 1 by commending Phoebe. He commends Phoebe to the Roman Christians. A former Gentile pagan, Phoebe was considered, quote, a servant, and that is a deacon in the church. Um, that's the same word we use for deacon elsewhere. There's huge debate on whether women can be deacon or not, deacons or not. Um, should they be recognized in an official office category or not? I, I lend to that to that belief um, based on this text that Phoebe seemed to be a, a deacon serving in a deacon fashion. So she may have been a deacon, um, but she was in uh, Sankri, which is a Port about six and a half miles from the city of Corinth. So just to kind of give you an idea of, of the lay of the land, Phoebe was a benefactor to many people, including Paul himself. And you should know that Phoebe was probably the one who took this letter from Corinth to the Christians in Rome. So she had a huge role to play. That's in verse two. Now, don't miss the significance of the fact that she's listed here first, um, patronage was a key, key aspect of the Greco-Roman world. So you had a lot of people who were, and today we might call them entrepreneurs, um, but they were basically traveling entrepreneurs. Patronage was this um, system within the Greco-Roman culture. And essentially you had a, a patron or a benefactor, they're sometimes called, who in this sense was a fairly wealthy person. Someone who had a lot of money, probably had multiple businesses going at once, um, maybe had inherited some wealth and then built on that wealth. Phoebe was that type of person, much like um, Lydia in, in the Book of Acts, who was a seller of purple. So she, she would probably had quite a, a bit of funds too. A lot of bitcoin and other things. Um, so you had, a, you had an entourage of basically servant employees who were with you all day, and they would walk wherever you went, and you could be rolling up into Walmart with your entourage of ten people, your servants, people who worked for you. They were earning a paycheck, and they were part of your business. They were part of your business dealings, and so all of your entrepreneurial stuff, you're you're dealing with that. If you own property, there you're going there to visit your renters, and you know you might tell one guy to go fix the toilet, and the other guy to go put a new roof on the house. Um, that's just sort of Trying to modernize what it was like. Um, obviously, Walmart was a more recent invention. <laughs> now, normally the clients serve the patron, but here Paul kind of switches it and he notes that the patron served the clients. Phoebe understood something. This is a true reorientation of the power dynamic that paganism loves. She was the one who was the servant of all, she had served Paul, she was a significant person. And, and that's not how you normally did things. If you were the benefactor, your servants did everything for you. Go fetch me a cup of coffee, maybe some chocolate-covered cashews. Uh, go get that stuff for me. But Phoebe was the opposite. She was the one who was a servant. She, she truly had a, a servant disposition. So Phoebe was significant. And also, just to kind of give you an idea, quite possibly Phoebe... Being a significant person in Corinth would have been well known by the civil magistrates there, would have been well known by many of the local Roman leaders. Um, she probably defended the rights of the poor, oftentimes giving per- like real expert testimony in courts in that type of situation. So that's, that's who we're talking about. Someone of real social significance. Um, she would have been a major financial donor and probably made sure her house, she probably had a big house with lots of, lots of rooms, not to quote audio adrenaline or anything, but uh, she had a, uh, a lot of homes probably, owned a lot of property, but she would be the type of person who would get a house ready to host church. She was that type of person. So the Roman Christians are told to welcome her. She's a significant individual. Welcome her, and as they should welcome her. And then he goes on to list the various people that they should greet. Here are the people that they, uh, you know, there's greetings from Paul. Who, Who are these people? Well, there's the husband and wife team, Prisca and Aquila, the Priscilla and Aquila of the book of Acts. That's in verse three. They were probably, they were Jews who were probably expelled from Rome by Claudius in 49 AD. So they were the ones who were in that group that got sent out of the city. We've talked about that a few times. They were co-missionaries with Paul in Corinth and as well in Ephesus. Verse 4, Paul says that they risked their necks. And most scholars think, and I think there's reason to assume, that what he means by that is they probably helped him at the riot in Ephesus in Acts 19. They stirred up some trouble, and they probably had were very much a help to Paul. Paul was sort of the troublemaker who had people with him to try to help, to help make sure he didn't get too out of hand. Now Prisca and Aquila, they too hosted church gatherings at their house. They were house church people too. In verse five, we read of the first uh, convert, not convent. Those would come later. The first convert in Asia. Epinatus, Mary is listed in verse 6. And whoever she is, we don't know who exactly this is. There's a lot of Marys in the New Testament. Whoever she is, she was a woman who served the church faithfully and she, Paul recognizes she's a hard worker. Maybe she was in charge of getting coffee ready for their church gatherings. And she just loved doing that and she worked hard at it. And Paul says, praise God for her. She's a hard worker. Andronicus and Junia, they were probably a husband and wife team like Prisca and Aquila. They were apostles. There's debate on that text, but it seems like Greek, the Greek would lend itself to them being apostles, um, meaning that they saw the risen Christ in verse 7. And Paul notes that they have been Christians long before Paul. So they may have been Christians from day one at Pentecost, quite possibly. Several names now come forward. Verse 8, we have Ampliatus, Urbanus, and Stacus, verse 9. Apelles, uh, the family of Aristobulus, verse 10. When Paul says in these texts, the family of, he means a house church. May not have been that type of person. Now, Aristobulus, that name should trigger you. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great died around 4 BC. So there's Herod the Great... Um, around the time Jesus was born while Herod the Great was still alive. So Jesus was probably born 5, 4 BC. I know that doesn't make any sense. Jesus was born before Christ. (laughs) We have a math problem, but that's for another day. Uh, A lot of these people, Aristobulus would have been a, a very important person. He probably had servants who were Christians. He probably had even family members who were Christians. We don't know if he himself was. Herodian is listed next in verse eleven, as well as the family of Narcissus, uh, Tryphania, Tryphana and Tryphosa, Persis, and Rufus. Interesting, um, he includes Rufus's mother, who knew Paul very well. Those are verses eleven through thirteen. Rufus, by the way, that name—this is significant. Who Rufus is? Rufus was mentioned in Mark fifteen twenty-one. He was the son of Simon the Cyrenian. If you remember Simon the Cyrenian, he was the one who carried, was told to carry the cross of Christ to the place of the skull where Jesus would have been murdered. Rufus was his son. So interesting connection um, with that. Now, one thing I, was interesting, Rush Duny noted that um, a lot of these names are slave names. And so we're talking about some were perhaps of lowly beginnings, some were of high beginnings. A person like Phoebe who had a lot of wealth, the family of Aristobulus and others in Caesar's household. A lot of wealthy people, but a lot of them weren't. They were, they were slaves who came to Christ. Um, so it's interesting that that's noted here. Uh, we have Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermas, uh, Petrobus, Hermas, Philologus, how's that a name? Name your kid that. Who, who's gonna have a baby next? Let's go with Philologus. <laughs> that's just my recommendation to the Hodson family. Um, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, interesting, and in then Olympus, and the saints with them, verse 14 and 15. Paul says in verse 16, to greet one another with a holy kiss, which, by the way, was a customary liturgical sign of family fidelity to one another, which, of course, um, we're talking about what happens sometimes in many places in Europe where you would kiss someone on both cheeks as a greeting. Uh, we don't do that here besides COVID. I don't know. Um, <laughs> maybe we should adopt that again. Now, what's neat about this section of the letter is, is how natural it was for Paul to just start railing off and listing people, just rifling through name after name, people who were all fellow co-workers in the early church. It's just it's a phenomenal letter, but this is a really neat aspect to it. Because he's not expounding on these heavy doctrines. He's just talking about these are people. There Paul had a network of people who all played various roles as members of Christ's body. They all had They worked together. They were truly the body of Christ and functioning in those ways. Think of them as Paul's strategic ministry kingdom-building partners, and he's just listing them all off. Now, more are going to be mentioned in a few verses, but we need to note here that Paul finds everyone involved in doing their part, exercising their gifts to build the church and see the kingdom expand, and I think we should take note of that. People like Priscilla and Aquila were very important to Paul. Paul. a lot of these folks were, were just encouraging to him. He loved them. He cared for them. Now, nearing the end, Paul says in verse 17, to be watchmen on the wall for people who cause division and create obstacles to the doctrine that they've been been taught. There are a lot of um, things that can spring up in a church. They can spring up in evangelicalism, as we've seen even today. Um, people who, who adopt this idea that you can... Um, uh, you know, sort of live one way and still be a Christian, sort of a carnal view of of Christianity. But these people, he says, don't serve Jesus, but instead they serve their own bellies. That's actually the literal Greek of the translation. They serve their own bellies. They may have been food fussers, the people that, like the true Judaizers who um, held to the food dietary laws and circumcision very strictly and and said that you, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to do that. May have been people like that. With smooth talk and flattery, they deceive people. Verse 18. The teaching then, Paul says, must be preserved. It needs to be uh, kept pure and untarnished from evildoers. And this is something that we have to fight for. You have to fight for doctrinal purity. You don't just experience it. You have to work at it. And you have to rebuke and correct. and, And these were all things that happened in the early church. And then look at verse 19. For your obedience, he's talking to the Roman Christians, for your obedience is known to all. So what I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. Notice that. Wise to what is good, innocent to what is evil, which is to say the antidote to heresy and false teaching, he says, is wisdom, innocence, and obedience to God. And when that happens, know that Jesus is dealing a death blow to Satan. Verse 20. So the the strength of the church, our strength, is found not in knowing evil, but in knowing the power and authority of King Jesus. And I think there's much to say regarding how to have a proper view of conspiracies. Not just leaping off into the darkness um, and trying to know evil, but also not just writing it off as if that thing doesn't ever happen. I think there's a principle there we could learn. Now, here in verse 20, this is an important... I'm going to take a second to explain this. In verse 20, Paul invokes the promise of Genesis 3.15, where the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, which is what Jesus did at the cross. So, in one sense, that's a done deal. Right? Jesus said, The former ruler, now the ruler of this age has been cast out. That's in the Gospel of John. So in one sense, that's already, that's already done. But here we have this ongoing, the covenantal curses of Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 coming into play. So he tells the first century Christians in Rome that through their obedience, Jesus will soon crush Satan under their feet. Now, I take this to mean that the, the immense social pressure that they faced, hostility from Jewish people who were not Christians, who were persecuting them, pagan Roman people who were persecuting them, think of the political tension for living in Rome. Okay. Imagine, you know, living in a place like DC during a pandemic when you don't want the vaccine and you don't want the mask and you're not going to do it, but everyone else is doing it. Okay. Imagine that type of pressure times 10. That's what the early Christians in Rome felt. You know, a small group of a hundred in a city of over a million, all eyes are on them sort of thing. They felt that pressure. But he said, though, that through their obedience, Satan would be crushed under their feet. In other words, that would be dealt with. That issue, that pressure, those things would be dealt with. Meaning that Christ would aid them during their current trial and certainly after. And the way Christ deals with it is by implementing the victory of the cross and resurrection in their day. So in in one sense, the cross crushed the head of the serpent. And Satan is bound in the sense that he can no longer deceive the nations. That's Revelation 20. But in another sense, we see there's still ongoing effects of that. Um, And Jesus would crush his feet. Now, nearing the end, Paul sends more greetings and love to Rome. Timothy, we're looking uh, now at verse 21. Timothy, Paul's main mentee, he greets them, as well as Lucius and Jason. Jason was from the book of Acts. Um, Sosipater, who may be the Sopater from Berea, he is found in Acts 20, verse 4. Uh, they're all sending hi, sending their hello to this church. We learn in verse 22 that the scribe, Tertius, sneaks in his own greetings as he would have been sitting with Paul during this letter writing, writing down everything Paul had said the whole time. So imagine Paul sitting in the room of a benefactor like Phoebe. Tertius, come here. I gotta, we gotta send, We got to crank out this letter to the Romans. Phoebe's going to send it. We need to finish it. So Paul's standing there and there, he's just talking. Tertius is, would have probably been a professional scribe. Could write quickly, type as it were, quickly. And they, and here at the end, it's this neat little thing where Tertius, hi, I've been writing this letter. I say hello too. You know, sort of a footnote. Gaius, verse 23, he was a house church host as well who, who Paul had been staying with in Corinth. And by the way, this supports the belief that Paul wrote Romans from the city of Corinth, along with the fact that Phoebe's mentioned. That was their headquarters, so he probably was there writing it while, while he was there, perhaps in Phoebe's house or Gaius' house, maybe Gaius's house. Also in verse 23, we learn of Erastus, who was a civic official, a city treasurer in Corinth. And... Um, I had heard this before, but I went back and dug this week to look. And back in 1929, for you archaeologist lovers, uh, back in 1929, there was a, the, uh, archaeologists had um, un- uncovered a, there was this inscription on a large paving stone, which would have been like a Roman robe, maybe like a side, like what, what we might call a sidewalk. And it read, Erastus, in return for his um, a dial ship, which a dial ship, and a dial was somebody who was in charge of public buildings. Uh, Erastus, in return for his a dial ship, laid, he laid the, the pavement there at his own expense. Now, that, they say, dates back to the first century. Now, the, whoever this Erastus was, he was a rich person. He was high, a high ranking official who belonged to the elite ruling class. And, and here in verse 23, we might have the same guy. And there's debate on it. Erastus, it's not like, you know, that's like the name John or, you know, like normal names that we use. Uh, It might have been him. If so, he was an important person in Corinth, and he was a Christian, and Paul knew him. And apparently we found a stone that has that writing on it. Pretty neat little side there. Uh, Quartus is also mentioned here. We don't really know much about anything about him. And uh, now we go into the doxology. So I want to just kind of focus the rest of our time there. So let's read that verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made, made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God and be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ amen now there are several things to note here as paul gives a final benediction to the christians in rome how would you close out a letter like this well he, he chooses a benediction a blessing a word a good word to to them and one thing you'll notice right away is one paul essentially closes out the letter using the same language as he did opening the letter that's why i wanted matt to read romans one he uses almost the exact same language Two, he also essentially summarizes the content of the letter as well. So he, he, there's a, it's a bookend, f- start and finish, very similar, and he's also covering what happens in between. Now, flip back to Romans one real quick, though, with me. Romans one, one through seven. Paul. A servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations." Note that phrase, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is a servant of the gospel of God. In chapter 16, he says, My gospel, the gospel he was given to him from Christ, And this gospel was, he says here in chapter 1, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Go back to chapter 16. He says, The revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings. Same thing. Paul lists the fact that Jesus is David's son, and that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, um, in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. And that mystery, he says, has now been revealed. And through him, he says in verse five, uh, chapter one, verse five, that we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Notice that's a very specific person, a uh, purpose rather. What is what is the purpose of the gospel? He says it's to bring about the obedience of faith for his for his namesake among all the nations. You go back to chapter sixteen. What does he say? He says to bring about the obedience of faith that phrase obedience of faith he starts and ends with it and everything in between is about obedience the obedience of faith so from the very beginning paul has made it clear that the gospel is a promise fulfilled from the old testament scriptures it wasn't entirely revealed in the revealed in the old testament there were things we just didn't fully know in the old testament economy but now Paul says that we know who Jesus is and we know what he has done. We've witnessed it. We've seen him die. We've seen him raised from the dead. Suddenly, it all makes sense. Suddenly, it starts working together. And and get this, because of this revelation, there is something major at stake. Because of what happened in the first century, something major is at stake. And it's a phrase Paul used at the beginning of Romans and here at the end. What's at stake is the obedience of faith among the nations. Everything from Romans 1 through Romans 16 has been essentially an exposition of the obedience of faith. Questions. What is faith? He's told us what that is. What is is faith? And what does it look like to be justified by it? We've, We've covered that. And now that the just shall live by faith, what does that look like when you're sharing a meal with someone? When, when you're helping someone financially because they're in a bind, uh, when meeting a need by babysitting the kiddos so that the parents can go out for dinner. What is, how does justification by faith play in that situation? See, the, the entire letter is Paul being utterly unashamed of the gospel and utterly undeterred by any obstacle that might rear its ugly head. I'm unashamed of the gospel so much so that I'm willing to waltz right in to this city and start preaching it in the streets, in the marketplace, at the pride event, at the abortion mill, anywhere there are people. That's what, that was Paul's objective. And, and what is it that compels Paul? What is it that, what is it that should compel us to have this big of a view of the gospel? See, the benediction here is a summary of what's gone before, and what has gone before is a very careful, oftentimes very difficult to understand, analysis of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And what is this gospel story? Well, the gospel itself is the royal announcement it's the royal announcement that God, through Christ, has unveiled God's long-kept secret. And this long-concealed plan of God is made known to the entire world because Jesus, who was crucified for our sins, was raised from the dead. And guess what he's doing now? He's ruling over the nations. He's ruling the world. That's the gospel. Don't go tell people the gospel is Jesus, Jesus loves you or Jesus died for you. That's really a very truncated version of it. Talk about God's secret unveiling in Christ and how it uh, goes to the nations. Talk about the fact that Christ died, yes, for your sins. He was raised for our justification. But guess what? He's ruling now, and it's your job to bend the knee. Talk about those things. See, in in Paul's mind, when we go about announcing the gospel to the nations, every tribe, every people, every event, you name it, wherever we're going, Paul says that the veil is then drawn back on God's eternal plan. And through repentance and faith, you have men, women, and children who can now respond with gratitude for what Christ has done. And then they become obedient loyalists to the kingdom. Never for once think that your preaching or your teaching or your, your interaction with someone about Jesus is falling on deaf ears. They, they're, they're not regenerate. They may not hear it, but don't act like you're wasting time. You're not wasting time. Paul sees the connection. We're going to preach Christ, and it's just going to happen. It's going to happen. The obedience of faith is going to happen, so keep going with it. And remember what we're dealing with when it comes to the gospel. Jesus was put to death on a Roman cross, a brutal death. Foolish, says the Greek, right? That's a stumbling block, says the Jews. Utter insanity, says the modern-day atheist. And their verdict is in, right? They are, that's a verdict that they are issuing. This Jesus is a phony blasphemer who deserves nothing but death. But what is the resurrection then? Because <laughs> they want Jesus to stay in the tomb and we're saying, too late. What is, what is the resurrection? Well, I'll tell you what the resurrection is. It's the reversal of the world's foolish verdict. You can say all you want that you are against Christ, but guess what? He's risen from the dead. Your verdict means nothing. I don't care what you think. You need to bend the knee to Christ. See, if if, and and this is how Paul works throughout Romans, if this Messiah couldn't fit into our pre-existing conceptualizations of 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 how God is supposed to act, you know, I just I can never worship a God like that. You know, I I could never accept a God like that. I could never this or you know, fill in the blank. If 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 this Messiah can't fit into those pre-existing conceptualizations that you have in your mind, then what does Paul say? Too bad. Too bad. Rather than fit Jesus into our existing presuppositions, we have to rethink all of our presuppositions. And that's what evangelism really does. You're asking people to rethink their presuppositions because they're either faulty or inconsistent or both. Usually it's both. That's, what's, that's what Romans is all about. So the gospel message itself is oftentimes today reduced. It's oftentimes truncated. And in many instances, it's reduced down to getting out of hell and getting into heaven. And that's all it is. That's how people think. Furthermore, the emphasis is usually on the atonement of Christ, which then diminishes the lordship of Christ that comes out of the atonement. Uh, I know what Paul says. I preach Christ to Him crucified. Well, he also said a whole lot of things, so don't just take that thing. Preaching the gospel is more than just saying Christ died for your sins. The only way to be right with God is to believe in the resurrection, he says, because the resurrection, he was vindicated. He was uh, declared in the right. He was justified in that sense. God declared him to be the Messiah. He was raised in power according to the spirit of holiness because of his resurrection, Romans 1. Romans 1. So it's not just the, the atonement of Christ, like an atone, atonement onlyism. We find early on in Romans, that, uh, in something that's throughout the rest of the letter, that Paul is working with a very, very specific gospel paradigm. He's working with a very specific gospel paradigm. Uh, he knows that Jesus is his Lord and Master. Paul sees himself as the slave, because he is. And working out from there, he sees the rest of the world as being summoned into obedience to Jesus' lordship. That's his starting point. That should be our starting point. The whole world is summoned to obedience to the Lordship of Christ. Everywhere, from the president on down to our local magistrates, they're all summoned to obedience. And being a missionary doesn't mean that we offer people one religious option among many. That's what many Christians and churches do today. You know, just give Jesus a try. You know, we're pretty sure your life will be better. I don't know what Jesus you're talking about, Furtick, but it's not the Jesus of Scripture. We're not offering one option among many, like this buffet of religious presuppositions. Yeah, Jesus is on the buffet, you should you should give him a shot, you know? You might feel better. No. It means that we summon all the people to allegiance to King Jesus, which also means that you have to abandon all of your other local deities, all of your priorities, all of your other presuppositions that don't fit. You have to throw them all away. That's what repentance is. And in other words, don't don't miss this. The gospel is actually an imperial summons. It's a command. And the appropriate response is obedience and fidelity. The, The Stop with the limp-wristed, namby-pamby gospel preaching. Oh, would you accept Jesus into your heart? Nonsense. It's a command. It is an imperial summon from the emperor himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's attitude. And this obedience of faith... Is the key phrase, and you could actually argue it's probably the entire point of the letter. But the word obedience in Greek—it's actually a compound word from the verb akuo, which means to hear. And when you, when, when we should hear echoes of the Shema, the Jewish prayer. Remember, it starts out, "Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Echad. It's He's one, right? So we should hear that here. That's why they call it the Shema. Shema means hear. Not only are we summoning the nations to obey, to hear the gospel, to obey the gospel, we're summoning them to hear and obey the one true God. We're not arguing for one Jesus over here and maybe another, you know, you can can love Jesus and then serve your flesh. That's fine too. We're not doing that. The faith, part of the obedience of faith that we're after in the world is a confession of the Lordship of Christ. Okay, confession, key word, When you confess the Lordship of Christ, you are thus in that moment renunciating. It's a renunciation of all other lords, including Caesar. And we're asking not only for a confession of the Lordship of Christ, we're we're asking for a belief that God raised him from the dead. And when you believe that Christ was raised from the dead, you are abandoning all of your idols. You are throwing them away. You're done with your, your sexual promiscuity. You're done with your idolatry. You're done with your greed, your lust. All of that is gone. You are throwing it away. All of your other doctrines are gone because Christ was raised from the dead. That's your confession. That's what you believe. And God has been shown to be faithful to his covenant by sending Jesus to die in our place for our sins. And following this, God raised him from the dead so that in him, having been transformed by the Holy Spirit, we might be faithful witnesses to the ends of the earth. So God's faithfulness is to be met by the faithfulness of his children. That's the demand. Jesus demands everything. He demands everything. Moreover, we are announcing something very distinct, by the way. Something very distinct. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.8, If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Great verse, lots of meaning. If the bugle blows an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? And I bring this up right now because the church does not have a distinct sound. And when you don't have a distinct sound, guess what? Very few are ready for battle. If we don't know what the gospel is, how will we fight for it? How will we persuade others to to join into it? We won't, right? And we can't. Our announcement, that's the bugle blow, must be clear, and it is this. God has unveiled in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection a covenant faithfulness. That's his saving justice. He has revealed a covenant faithfulness through which Satan, sin, and death, and idolatry has been put away. It's gone. And because of that, a new family has now emerged in the world characterized by a faith that meets and answers to the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah. He is the true Lord of the world. Anything short of that is, is, is a tawdry, putrid gospel message. And, and I'll say, quite frankly, we are not getting the results of victory that we would like to see because our soldiers are not ready for battle. And the reason the soldiers aren't ready for battle is because the bugle blow is indistinct. We are not getting the results of victory that the Bible says we'll have. We're not getting the results of victory because our soldiers aren't ready for battle. And the reason the soldiers aren't ready for battle is because the bugle blow is indistinct. The church is too busy lighting their pants on fire and dancing on stage. And we have to get this gospel of the kingdom message right. Paul's final benediction is somewhat funny because he is clearly overwhelmed at the thought of all of this. So much so that he almost doesn't even finish what he was saying. Did you catch that in the benediction? He sort of just gives up, it seems like. God is able to strengthen us for battle In accordance to the gospel of the preaching of Jesus Christ, right? The royal announcement that what was secret is now fully revealed. And the the one that was written about in the prophetic writings, the the gospel that's made known to the nations for the obedience of faith. And he he keeps going and he keeps going. It's going to bring it about. And then he stops. And he says, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And you can feel it, right? He just keeps going and going and going. then he pauses. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Only God is good. Only God is infinitely wise. Paul knows how the world works. He knows how humans work, what humanity is capable, capable of. He knows all the inner workings of idolatry, what is righteous, what is unrighteous. He knows how badly idolatry can take root in the hearts of men. But he also knows how the gospel, and he's seen firsthand how the gospel can set a man free, can set a woman free, can set a child free free us from those said dangers. He, he also sees the world-transforming power of King Jesus and how creation itself, Romans 8, can be set free from the bondage of sin. He sees all of these magnificent mountaintops. And it's as though he's, while dictating this letter to Tertius, having listed all of his friends and all of his ministry partners, and he, he's brought us back to the glories of the gospel, it's, it's almost as though Paul has this emotional fit here at the end. And that the only thing he can do is to praise the wisdom and the glory of God through Jesus Christ. And I'll just end here. I think he invites us to have an emotional outburst as well. Uh, You might call it a benedictionary eruption. You heard it here first. I'm coining that phrase. (laughs) We might say loving and praising and glorifying God with whatever tempestuous joy you can muster up. Who cares who's watching, right? Jesus is king. God is wise. God is good. The nations are going to be transformed. And God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this letter to the Romans that you have provided us from the pen of Paul and the help of Tertius and Phoebe carrying it along and, and the people that you used, our brothers and sisters of old, people you've used to, to see this gospel go to the nations. And, And Father, I I do ask and pray that your church would stop blowing an indistinct sound, that we would herald the truth of your supremacy, your authority, your wisdom, and your glory. Lord, the world is, is in desperate need of clarity of thought. And it doesn't have it yet because we don't quite have it in the church either. So I pray that you would strengthen us and equip us to this great task. And Father, as we partake of communion and our agape meal, and um, I, I, I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged and that your Spirit would, would be here among us. So we give you the pra- praise, Lord Jesus, in Christ's name, amen.